And if you don't have a Bible and you would like to follow along with us, just lift up your hand and the ushers will uh, drop one off in your lap so that you can follow along with us in our study. It's great to see you all and to be here. And let's again just ask the Lord to, uh, to bless his time. Father, we're so grateful for your plan. Lord, that from the foundation of the world, you knew each of us by name. You knew all of our days before we lived even one of them. You knew the number of hairs that would be upon our head. And you ordained it that not even one would fall to the ground without you knowing it. You perceive our thought from far off. You, you know our downsitting and our uprising. Lord, there's nowhere, anywhere, Lord, that we can be separated from you. And so, Lord, tonight, with all of those promises in mind, Lord, we open your word, this transforming truth that you have laid before us, that we might be fed, that we might be changed, instructed, and equipped. So, Father, I pray this time would be fruitful, that it would bring you pleasure, and that you would be glorified, Lord, tonight in the things that we learn and hear and it's in Jesus' name that we ask your blessing on this time. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 8, we're picking up in verse 14. I believe it was Donald Barnhouse, that great old commentator, that said that if a Bible accidentally falls open because it's dropped or laid in a place, that if it accidentally falls open, that every Bible should open to Romans chapter 8. It truly is one of the high points of the New Testament. It's, it's, it's uh, one of the highest peaks of the New Testament Alps, if you would. And we began our study of chapter 8 last week, the, the blessings of believing, as we continue on with Paul, as he's carrying us, really, on an eagle-eye perspective of the Christian faith. He's seeking to overview and highlight for us the experience that we have as we enter into this relationship with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. In chapters 1 through 3, he told us about our need for salvation. That our sin separated us from God, but that it was God who made the plan to send His Son into the world that we might be brought back into that relationship with Him through the blood that was shed for us. And then in chapters 4 and 5, our justification. That it isn't by our works or our righteousness or our keeping of the law that we're justified before God but rather it's a gift that is given to us, paid for by Christ Himself, our positional righteousness. And then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, He talks to us about our sanctification. That is the process of God working out through our lives now the thing that Christ has first put in our lives at the moment that we were saved. God working in us to conform us into the image of Christ. Our salvation, our justification and our sanctification. Romans chapters 1 through 8. And now as we find ourselves in chapter 8, Paul enumerates for us the blessings of the Christian life, this privilege, this glorious privilege that we have being called the sons and the daughters of God. Now in our time together last week, we looked at the first 13 verses, 
And really the first of four that Paul holds up before us in this chapter, these blessings that are ours, and that is that there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. That our past sins are put away. Those things that haunt us, that spring up from time to time in our mind and trouble us concerning our history, things that we've done or things that have been done to us, it's all washed away. All things are made new. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And as we pick up tonight in verse 14, we come to the second of these great blessings, these great privileges that are ours in Christ, and that is absolute adoption. That we are adopted, that we're brought into the family of God. Look with me at verse 14. Paul writes and he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. That we are adopted. Now if you recall from our study at our time together last week, we looked at the difference between those who live and walk and think after the flesh and those who live and walk and think after the Spirit. Paul laid out for us in very careful detail what it means to live after either one or the other. And the reason that he did that, and if you weren't here or didn't hear that study, I would encourage you to to pick up the tape and to go through those things because such a vital topic, so important is it for us to understand what it means to either be living a life after the flesh or living a life after the spirit. And that the reason why that's so important is because these blessings apply to those who are living after the spirit, to those who have given their lives to Christ, to those who are actively walking with him, pursuing his interests, growing in your relationship and in the knowledge of him. That it's to you, you who are seeking after God and desire to know Him in a real and a living way. It's to you that these blessings and privileges apply. Now in verse 14 when he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, that's who he's talking about. He's talking about those whose heart is inclined towards spiritual things. They're living after and desiring. They have the mind of Christ. They mind spiritual things. And just as there's no condemnation to them, also they are called, those that follow him that way, they are called the sons of God. They are given the glorious privilege of adoption. Now, I I bring that to your attention because there are some that would conclude that this group of people that Paul is addressing here now, when he says to them that they that are led by the Spirit of God, that there are some that would say that this is a a mystically advanced select group of a few chosen individuals who have this special connection to God. That, That they have gotten what everybody else wants. That you, as a Christian, you are pursuing the type of connection to God that only I have attained. And you wish that you could be like me. I am truly one who is led by the Spirit of God, more in tune, closer to God than you think that you are. Everybody wishes they have what I have. No, listen, the Bible says that we all see through a glass darkly. 
That, that we all kind of see a shadow, that, that, that spiritual things, though we have tasted the good word of God, though we have a vision of things to come, though we've received the spirit of God, yet we still see through a glass darkly. None of us have the perfection of, of saying that we always do things perfectly all the time. Have you ever met somebody like that? Those super spiritual people that would make you think that they really are closer to God? I, I've known a few in my lifetime. And it can be quite frustrating and sometimes a little bit humorous and all the rest. But we have a glimpse of spiritual things. We see through the shadows. Our vision is partial and incomplete. It's interesting to me that the more mature that Paul became, the less spiritual he viewed himself. That as he progressed in his maturity and his walk with God, he saw himself as more sinful than he did at the beginning. He saw himself having less. He said, I, he, in Philippians, he said, I do not count that I have arrived or that I've attained to that for which I've been called. But he said, this one thing I do, I press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He says, that's what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. Not that you're perfect. Not that you have it all together. But where are you aiming? What direction are your feet pointed in? Where are your eyes looking? Those are they that are led by the Spirit. And Paul tells us here that those that are led by the Spirit, they have the right to adoption. That they are called the sons of God. They have a sincere desire to follow Christ. And they do the things that they know are of God in their lives. They are the sons of God. John chapter 1 verse 12, the Gospel of John. John writes and he says to his, or Jesus speaking, says, he said of Jesus, he says to as many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God. Have you received Christ tonight? Have you asked Jesus to come into your life, to forgive you of your sins, to be your Lord and your Savior, and he's filled you with his spirit, and now your life is aimed after him? The Bible says that you have the right to be called the son or the daughter of God. And notice how he defines it in verse 15 by saying, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now he sets a contrast for us. He says that you have not received the spirit of fear, spirit of bondage to fear, but rather it's the spirit of adoption. Now the spirit of bondage to fear, it's a reference to the law. That old covenant that you were under, that where you could never measure up to the righteous standards of God, where you could never be pleasing to Him no matter how hard you tried, no matter how spiritual you behaved, no matter how many services you attended or prayers that you made, you could never quite measure up to the standard of perfection that the law required. And the result of that was bondage because you found yourself chained to religious duties and rituals to behaviors that were of such a high standard it was impossible for your flesh to conform and it brought you into a state of fear because you're always worried about if God's going to judge you or punish you or condemn you. And we have not received that spirit in Christ, Paul says, but rather it's the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now the word Abba, and I'm so glad it's, it's Abba because it's the purest sense of the word. It's the Greek word for Daddy. That he's no longer, you know, remember little orphan Annie, you know, Daddy Warbucks. Remember Devon Trapp's father, you know. He's no longer the Godfather, he's Father God. He's Abba, he's Daddy. That's the relationship that we have with Christ, with Him, it, it, with God through 
Christ, what He's done is that He's our Daddy, He's our Father. And we've been brought into that relationship. Now in chapter 3, if you remember back in chapter 3, when Paul, in verse 24, told us that we've been redeemed, that we're saved by this redemption that's in Christ Jesus. If you recall, you remember I told you there are three words for redeemed. It speaks of slavery, that we were slaves, and that we were purchased from slavery by Christ. And there are three words for that. One is when you purchase a slave in order to sell him again, like a slave trade. The second is when you're purchased for use. You're purchased out of the slave market to be owned by a master. But then there's when you're purchased from the slave market in order to be set free. Purchased with the intent of being freed, delivered, let go. And that that's what it means that we are redeemed, that we're, we're saved, we're brought out of slavery, the spirit of bondage, and we're brought into freedom. But listen, it doesn't stop there. Many Christians receive that freedom and then they stop. I work with a guy that is from Guatemala and he's a, he's a legal citizen of the United States, has been for years, he's almost 50 years old. And he told me his story of how he ended up here. And uh, it's a great story. He, we were working one day and he all of a sudden his leg cramped up. And I said, what's the matter? He says, well, I got metal in my leg. And I said, why you got metal in your leg for? He said, well, I was shot. And I said, oh, okay. No, <laughs> I said, you got shot. What happened? And he began to tell me his story. And many years ago, this is back, I don't even know how long, probably 20, 30 years ago, he was in Guatemala, and there was a war in, in the country between a rebel group and the government. And the United States government came into that country at that time, and they hired Guatemalan people to fight on their behalf. Because we weren't actively involved in that conflict, our military wasn't allowed to fight in the battle. But we were allowed to go down there and help them with their military, the government, so that they wouldn't be overthrown. And so this guy, Luis, that I work with, he was working in the, you know, the cane fields for a couple dollars a month. And it was almost nothing. And the United States was offering $50 a month to fight the war on their behalf. So what fool wouldn't join? So he joined. And he was, you know in the trenches and going through all these things, and he was shot. He, long story short, he got shot. In the middle of the night, they were trying to crawl through this area, and uh, the guys were up in the trees, and he was shot in the leg, and, and he survived. And so I said, well, that's amazing. Did you get anything for that? I mean, you know, did, what, what did you get? You were working for the U.S. government, and you got shot. He goes, they didn't give me nothing. And I said, nothing? He goes, no. They, he said, okay, they gave me something. He, they gave me a choice. They would either give me a job with the Guatemalan Police Department, which would uh, basically put me right back on the same level I was at in the cane fields. He said, or my other option was a one-day visa to come into the United States. They gave him 24 hours to cross into this country, and then he would be an illegal citizen. But they were going to give him access in. And so he said, I'll take the visa. So he came into this country, and he was redeemed. He was set free from bondage in Guatemala. He was freed from that lifestyle there where there was corruption and where there was oppression and where there was poverty and famine. He was freed from that life and he was brought into this country but he was and he was redeemed for freedom, but it stopped right there. After that, he worked 22 hours a day. He slept for 2 hours. And he would work around the clock, washing dishes, folding clothes, doing anything he could to just, to just scrape by, eke by. See, 
Many Christians live like that. They're freed from corruption, from bondage. They're redeemed and they're brought into freedom, but then they think, now I've got to earn my keep. Now that I've been saved, now I've got to do all these things and I've got to please God, and so I'm going to work around the clock to try to please Father God, or Godfather rather. I'm going to pray without ceasing. I'm going to study the Bible 16 hours a day. I'm going to be at every meeting. And they go through all this thing. They find themselves getting tired. They find themselves getting burned out. Because though they've been redeemed, they've failed to recognize that they've been adopted. Now what if Louis, when he first came into this country on his 24-hour visa that he was so graciously granted for taking a bullet for us, on our behalf, at least for our government, what if Louis upon arrival into our country, was picked up by a limousine there at the airport. And he was escorted right to the front doors of the White House. And and there they come around and they open the door for him and they roll out the red carpet. And and he's escorted, he's brought up, limping of course, because he's been shot in the leg, limping up to the front door and, and they bring him into the White House and there he sees a layout that he's never seen before. He sees ornamental decor and, you know, the works just fancy beyond anything that he could ever imagine where he comes from. And then he's brought in and he's seated there at the table there. And there's the president of the United States sitting there and they're going to share a meal together. And course by course brought before him are delicacies and delights that are beyond his wildest imaginations. And then after the meal, he's ushered to his place, the room that's being given to him there. It's his, it belongs to him. And then he's briefed on the responsibilities that he's going to get to enjoy and do on behalf of this country that he's now been adopted into. And then, you know, the provisions that will be laid before him. What if that were the story? See, that's our story. It isn't that we've just been redeemed and that now we're free. So we're going to go and earn our own way and make the best of what we can with our freedom. But we've been given the adoption. We've been brought into his house. We've been called his sons and his daughters. We've been given an inheritance that's reserved in heaven that fades not away, that only grows and gets brighter as time goes on. And he goes on to say that we are heirs. Verse 17, he says that if we are children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. That there's an inheritance that's laid up for us. Now, we all know what that means in the physical. Right? We heard just recently the passing of George Steinbrenner. And the rant was, it was perfect timing for him to die because, you know, there was going to be this, uh, you know, death tax that starts again next year and all of the money that's going to be passed on to his, uh, you know, descendants would be taxed and taken and they would miss out. But because he died this year, they're going to get something, you know. But we understand what that means. I mean, if you're Steinbrenner Jr., you know, there's kind of a mixed emotion, right? I mean, I don't mean to be irreverent. But there's something in you that goes, oh, no, oh, good, oh, no, oh, good, you know, because you know what's about to take place because you're an heir. You're in the will. Your name is there. And what the Bible is saying is that because we've been adopted, our name is in the will, that we are joint heirs with Christ. Now, we're not talking about George Steinbrenner. We're not talking about Sam Walton. We're not talking about Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, or George Soros, or... Anybody who owns gold or silver or the wealth of this world, we're talking about God Almighty. 
The Bible says that He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The Bible says that in His presence are pleasures forevermore. That the streets in His kingdom are paved with gold. And it isn't just that you get to live there and earn your keep, but you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That this great adoption, this privilege that we have as believers, is that we're headed for heaven. And our inheritance in our place is secure. It's complete. It's been purchased for us by Christ. All to His glory and none to ourselves. You say, Nick, you kind of read over a word there in verse 17 that I want to ask you about. That, that little suffer word. You know, you're talking about these great promises. You're talking about the glorious privileges that we have as being sons of God. But, you know, Paul said something there and I want to talk about that. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. You say, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that, Nick. Why, if we have all this grace, all this glory, why is life so hard? Why is it that here and now, it seems like I'm being beaten? It seems like I'm being buffeted. It seems like it's constant struggle of trial and tribulation. What's the story? Why is that going on? Well, Paul doesn't brush over this. He gives us the answer. But at the same time, he also tells us the next privilege that we have. Number three, if you're taking notes. And that is that we've been given a hopeful expectation. Not just no condemnation, not just absolute adoption, but also a hopeful expectation. Now, hope, we've talked about it in previous studies, we've defined it as the absolute expectation of coming good. That there's this expectation that there is good coming, that regardless of the circumstances and the situation presently, there's good coming in the future. Now, the point that Paul's going to make here in this is that if everything in this life was easy after we got saved then there would be for us no need for heaven and no desire in us to hope for it. I mean, it's true. When things are going right and things are just, you know, going along smoothly and there's no problems and life is easy, you know, we kind of forget about the things of God, don't we? Heaven kind of fades into the background and the blessings of our present life kind of seem good. We're full, we're satisfied. But when tribulation, when suffering, when trials, when difficulties, when buffetings come across our path, we find ourselves then saying, Oh God, help me! Oh God, save me from this wretched world! You know, and, and, and all of a sudden, our perspective is flip-flopped where now future things are coming back to the forefront and looking brighter. And we begin to remember and realize that this earth is temporary. That it's not going to last. It's not going to work. But Paul talks about this concept. Why is there suffering? Why do we have to go through this? He says, if we suffer with Him, we'll be glorified with Him. And then in verse 18, he holds up for us this special lens. It's a gift that only the Christian can have. It's called the lens of eternity. Look at verse 18. He says, for I reckon, and again, Remember that word, reckon. It's the same word to impute or to lay to the account of. It's, it's an act of faith. It's something that we do. It's a choice that we make that we're going to reckon something to be so. We're accounting it as true. We're believing it to be that it's a fact. No negotiation. 
For I reckon, I impute, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to even be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. He doesn't ignore the fact of suffering or discard it as unimportant. He explains it, but as he does, he looks at it, views it through the lens of eternity. That suffering, the amount of suffering that you endure in no matter what area or age of your life that you go through it, it cannot even be put on the same scale as the glory that's going to be revealed in the future. That you can't even put the two things in the same sentence, that they don't belong together. It's like talking about two and, you know, opposite things, that they just, not even in the same sentence. Pee Wee Herman, bodybuilding. You know, those two things just don't go together. You know, it's, it's not real. And he's saying the sufferings of this present age, the glory that will be revealed in us. They don't belong in the same sentence because what's coming, this glory that's coming, is so much more than anything that this world you know, could, 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 could complain about in terms of suffering. Suffering in the life of a Christian produces hope because it causes us to hunger for eternity. And that's what he explains in these next verses, verses 19 through 25, the hungering of the creature for that which is yet to come the hope that it produces in the time of suffering. He says in verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. He's saying that the whole creation is buzzing with an expectancy. That that there's something there, whether it be in the background. It's kind of like when I was studying for this. I was sitting at the desk in, you know, we have this little room with a desk. And I, you know, I have no pattern, you know, to how I do this. Sometimes I am different places. But I'm sitting at this desk and there was a cricket in the room. And it was one of those buzzing crickets. You know, it wasn't like, you know, and, and I tried to find it. I knew it was in there, but those guys, they have this thing where they can bounce the sound off the walls. And, and for the life of me, it was driving me crazy. I had to go somewhere else. There was this frequency. And the same thing is true with the creation. There's a buzzing, there's a frequency, there's something in the air where there's, there's an expectancy that there's something wrong, there's something broken on this earth, there's something that needs to change, that, that it almost seems like, you know, almost like sci-fi. That at one point things were different, that, that things weren't like this, but something broke along the way, and now things are, are crooked, they're twisted, they're wrong. And the earnest expectation of the creation waits, it says, for the manifestation of the sons of God. The unveiling of that which is to come. The revealing of that which is perfect. The revelation of Jesus Christ, it's called, in another place. That's what the world is waiting for, this expectation. He says, for the creature or the creation was made subject to vanity. Not He says, willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. He says that, first of all, the the creation, this creation that we are a part of, was made with a tendency towards emptiness or evil. That it was made subject to vanity, that it had the capacity to be broken, to be evil. And then he says, not willingly, which meant that it, it wasn't by its own choice or of God's intent that it should be corrupted. He says, but by reason of him 
who had subjected the same in hope. In other words, it's not, it was God's intention that in the corruption that would come to this planet, that it's, the creation would look to Him in hope. You follow? It says, by reason of Him, that means that God thought it out. That He looked into the whole thing and He said that when the corruption comes, when the creation is broken, when there's this corruption that comes towards them, that it will cause them to look up. It will cause them to have hope. It will cause them to look for that which is to come. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Do you feel that? Do you sense it? Do you sense that there's a groaning, that there's a waiting, that there's something happening because of the the labor and the pain of sin that it's causing upon this earth, that the whole creation is, is looking towards the Lord or looking for something to happen? And he says, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. That we also are looking up, that we're expecting that there's something in us where we're groaning and we're saying, Lord, come quickly. Lord, fix this broken planet. Change this corrupted creation and do it, Lord. We wait for you to come. And Paul is telling us that that act of groaning, that internal longing that we have to move on into something that's better and lasting, he says that that groaning is itself an act of hope. That we're hoping for something that's better. He says, for we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for it? If it was here now, if if everything was easy, if the Christian's path was all just rose petals and blessing and ease, then you would have no hope of future things. You'd be experiencing glory now to its fullest. He says, but hope that is not seen. If we hope for that which we see not, then we do with patience hope for it or wait for it. So suffering, this thing that God has allowed us to endure as Christians, as His people, produces something within us. It produces hope. It also produces prayer. It causes us to look up, to draw near, to press in to God. Look at verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He says that the Spirit helps our infirmities. That though we're suffering, though there's there's these difficult things that we go through and trials that beset our path constantly, yet as we call out to the Lord, Yet even the groanings that we have, that, that internal longing for something, we don't even have the words to say that the Spirit itself intercedes through us on our behalf. That God knows the, the heart and the mind of the Spirit and He interprets even the very groanings that we groan in the season of our suffering. And that He's working it out on our behalf, working it. Now, let me ask you this. When do you groan? Do you groan when you're in a season of prosperity? Do you groan when you're in a season of pleasantness? Or do you groan when you're encompassed with problems? That's when we groan. 
So the suffering that we endure, it does something in us. It produces hope within us for future things, for eternity to come. And it produces prayer to come out from us. And it tells us that He mixes His intercession with that prayer. He's our faithful High Priest. So, there's no condemnation. We've received the adoption. We've been given a hopeful expectation that even the suffering that we're going through is working for us. And so the conclusion of the matter, as far as it you know, uh, concerns the hopeful expectation that we have, is verse 28. He says that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Now, before I comment on this verse, about maybe eight or nine months ago, I did a job with my company in Stanford, Connecticut. And in Stanford, recently they built the first real high-rise, a real superstructure. I think it was probably you know, somewhere between 30 and 40 floors. And, and it's by far the highest structure there in Stanford. And we work on the roof, you know, we put in the trim up there and all that. And I was there, I was by myself, there was nobody else on the roof. And I had to climb up with a ladder onto this, uh, they call it a bulkhead. It's like a room on top of the roof where they put uh, different, you know, equipment and, and things. So I climb up on this thing and there sitting right in the middle of this was the platform where they were going to erect the steeple or like the lightning rod, you know, which is usually like another 15 or 20 feet up. And that's where they measure their elevation from to kind of log it in the books and all that. However, they hadn't yet installed this, you know, lightning rod thing. So it's just this platform that's like three feet up off the roof where I'm standing. So I thought, well, this is really cool. I'm in Stanford. I'm in the highest point in Stanford, and I'm going to stand on the highest thing. So I climb up there, and I'm, I, I mean, you can see everything. I could see into White Plains. I could see Manhattan. I could see all of Stanford. I could see north way up into Brewster. I could look all around, and that was just the highest thing for everywhere. And I thought, wow, I must really look like a retard standing up here on this, on this thing, you know. But it was just cool to say, hey, I've stood on the highest point in Stanford. You know, not many people can say that, but I can say that I've done it. Now listen, I say that to say this. Right now, church, behold, you are standing on the highest point in the Bible. There is no, well, other than maybe Revelation 22 when Jesus comes back. You know, maybe, arguably, you could probably eye-level that off from where we are standing right now. But Romans 8.28 is by far the high point of the New Testament terrain. And that is that in your situation, in your life, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you don't hope, you don't think, you don't suppose, you don't account it or reckon it or any of those other words, but you know, Paul says, that all things are working together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. That whatever your situation is right now, no matter how heavy the problem, no matter how weighty the circumstance, no matter how distressing the season, Paul says we know that all things are working together for good. No, there's no way that this could be working. This thing that I'm going through, maybe other things, maybe I'll look back on this and say I got through it, but there's, no, listen, all things, he says, we know are working together for good. All things. My grandmother never used a cake mix to bake a cake. She used to do it from scratch. I mean, she'd 
you know, get the flour and the thing, and, you know, she'd mix all this stuff. And she would make the cake, and it was just the best-tasting thing you could ever imagine, just moist and sweet and fluffy and the whole thing. But one time, as she was making that cake, she had this uh, tub of lard there, and it looked like frosting. So I did what any eight-year-old would do. I, you know, took a big spoon and not a teaspoon, but a tablespoon, you know, and I just scooped it up and she wasn't looking and home. I think I still got some in there, you know. (laughs) There were some pretty nasty ingredients that went into that cake. But when it came out of the oven, you said, wow, that is the best thing I've ever tasted. And in our lives, from time to time, there are some things that go through us or we go through that we would say, this is awful. This is wretched. This is going to stick with me forever. But on the other side, we'll look back on it and we'll say, wow, he really worked it for the good. Joseph, you know the story. I don't have to go through it. I don't have time. But when he came out on the other side and his brothers were standing there before him saying, we didn't know. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That he was able to come out on the other side and look back on everything that he had gone through, the years in prison, the the feelings of abandonment and rejection, the doubts of the promises of God in his life, the accusation of Potiphar's wife, the reproach and the shame that was cast upon him because of it. The two years of just waiting in the prison, hoping that the butler would maybe say something to the king, but then throwing it all off and saying, it's all gone, it's all lost, it's a lost cause. But yet then on the other side of it, seeing what God was doing, what God was shaping, what God was making in this man's life, he would look back and he would say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Paul doesn't say that we reckon it, we hope it, we think, gosh, it would be really good if... He says, we know all things work together for good to those that love God. What are you going through tonight? See, we've been given a hopeful expectation. Think about the things that people go through. Think about the pain, the physical, the mental, the emotional struggles that people deal with constantly, never never ceasing and never goes away. Think about the loss that people endure, the loss of life, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse. The loss of personal property. Think about the abuse that people endure in their marriages. Children being abused by their parents. People being abused by, you know, people that they seek to befriend or by employees or employers or by co-workers. And just there's a verbal, a constant berating and uh, this abuse, a belittling of them people endure. Think of the injury that people go through, disabilities and unplanned sicknesses. Think of the things that children go through, losing their parents or having the stability ripped out from under them as the family breaks up. Now, think about us. We're not absolved from any of those things. We go through pain and loss and abuse. We go through injury and sickness. We go through all of the things that the world does. But the difference is we know that all things are working together for good. And if you really stop and consider what that means... To be going through whatever it is that you're going through, knowing that God's got his hand on it. That at any given time, he has one hand on the thermometer and one hand on the thermostat. That that thermometer cannot get one degree hotter than what he controls. 
and that everything is Father filtered, that there's nothing that happens to you in your life that he doesn't have perfect control over and that isn't a perfect ingredient in what God's working on on your behalf. Now, if you know that, you are light years ahead of the world that's just going through those things aimlessly. Why is this happening to me? What's going on in the stability, the whirlwind that's sweeping them away? Because they're unsure. They don't know. There's no foundation. There's no anchor. There's no reality. They're just blind and in darkness, and they're being tossed around, headed for a black hole, a vacuum of understanding. And yet to you and me sitting here, though we go through great heavy things, we know that all things are working together for good to those that love God. This is how the spirit in you views suffering. See, the flesh in you can despair. The flesh in you can go crazy with thoughts and fears. But the spirit in you looks at suffering and says, this is working for the good. This is producing hope within my life. And this is provoking me to pray. It's drawing me closer to God. It's working together for good. And as adopted sons and daughters of the king, we have the right, the privilege, and the responsibility to view trials and hardships this way within our lives. That God has a reason for it. We have a hopeful expectation. He sums up this section on our hopeful expectation, verses 29 through 34. We might get snagged here, we'll see. He says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. In light of all that we've been given and all that we have, the privilege and the standing and the position that we have before God, what possibly could go wrong? Look at the words that he used. He says, those whom he foreknew, he predestinated. Those whom he predestinated, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Do you notice that every single one of those words is in the past tense? That right now, God looks at you and from his lens of eternity, he sees you as the finished product. He sees you not as, okay, well, you're at the called point. Okay, well, you're at the, you know, saved point. Well, okay, you're at the justified point. Oh, and you're at the sanctified point. And him back there, well, he's about to be glorified. He's going home tonight. No, that's not how he sees it. He looks at you, where you are, whether you got saved 20 years ago or 20 minutes ago, or if you get saved later tonight. He looks at you, and through his lens, he sees you as already glorified because he knows what he's going to produce in you. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. He knows what he's doing and what he's working in you. Jesus looked at Peter there in John chapter 1, the first time that he ever laid eyes on him, and he said, you are Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Shifting sand is what it means. But you shall be Peter, rock, Petros, stable. I'm going to do a work in your life and I see the end from the beginning and I call those things that aren't as though they are and I see what I'm going to produce in your life. And the same thing is true for you, Christian. 
God looks at you and he sees not what you are, but he sees what you will be. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Nick, you just skipped something I want to talk about again. Verse 29. I was gently warned by some of you as we first began in the book of Romans that you said, are you sure you want to get into Romans? I said, well, yeah, why not? There's some things in Romans that can cause some pretty, uh, pretty heavy discussions. And I said, yeah, I know. I think we can handle it, you know. One of those things is right there in verse 29. It says, those whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Now, that presents a very interesting question. Now, this is parenthetical. This is uh, completely FYI I'm giving you this. This has nothing to do with the blessings of our believing. I'm just giving this to you because it's in our study. We're there in the scriptures. So, bear with me. Hang on for just a second. Here's the argument. Here's the debate. Here's the discussion. Did I choose him when I came to my place of salvation? Or did he choose me? Which one is it? Oh, I didn't ask you to answer. I was just telling you what the argument was. Should I just let you guys brawl for a minute? You know, because people do. You know, you think that softball games in churches produce brawls. No, this produces brawls in the sanctuary, not the softball field. You know, people really go at it over this. Well, what itch is it? Did I, did I choose the Lord? Did I make a decision inside to say, I am coming to Christ? I, am, I have weighed out all my options, I have seen everything, and I am making a decision that I am giving my life to Christ, and therefore am I saved? Or, was it God that b- grabbed me and saved me, and it had nothing to do with my choice, but God just saved me? I was elected, I was predestinated, and that's it. Which one is it? Well, Matthew 11, chapter 28 Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. According to Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus, I chose him. I made a decision. He gave me the choice, and I made the choice. John chapter 6, verse 37 says, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That to me tells me that I made a decision. I chose to come to him, and that he won't cast me out once I come to him. John seven thirty seven says, if any man thirst... Jesus said, let him come unto me, and out of his belly will gush torrents of living water. That tells me that I have a choice. Jesus laid that out before the multitude. If any man thirsts, let him come. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, says that the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that heareth, come. Or say, come. And let him that is a thirst, come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now that seems quite conclusive to me that anybody who desires to can come. That you have the choice. That you can come to Christ. The choice is yours. Now, in this corner, John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said these words. He said, No one can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. That tells me that the choice is his. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, it says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. For even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. That seems to indicate that the choice is his. I sound like that guy from The Princess Bride, right? I certainly can't choose the wine in front of you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, 
For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. That seems to say that the choice is his. It's given to you in the behalf of Christ to believe. Colossians 2.12 says that you are buried with him in baptism. You are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. The faith is the operation of God, that he's the one who ordained and gave you the faith, so therefore the choice is his. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You know, and then he goes on to say, but he says that the faith that you've been given is not from you. That it is a gift from God. So therefore, it would be of him. So which is it? Because it would seem that we have an impasse here. It would seem here that one of these two things is true, and to, you know, to the exclusion of the other, that both of these things cannot both be true. Well, I say to you, yes, they can. Well, you say, no, 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 it's either one or the other. It, it, it's either a circle or a triangle. It's either a circle or a triangle. Look, do you see that? It's rounded. There's no side, there's no breaks, there's no corners. That's a circle. And on the other side, they say, no, that's a triangle. It's got three sides, three straight lines. That is clearly a triangle. Now, listen, how does that work? How does it flesh out? What you do, here's what it is. You add dimension. See, something can be both a circle and a triangle. It's called a cone. See, if in 2D, it's either one or the other, but in 3D, it can be both. You add dimension. See, where we stand from our vantage point, we can't understand how these two things work together. How can it both be that I chose him and that he chose me? I, I know, for me personally, I made a decision. I weighed out the options, I chose, I came to Christ. The Bible says, I can't even come to him unless he draws me. How can both of those things be true? You add dimension. Well, what's that dimension? Paul tells us right here in Romans, it's the first thing he uses in verse 29. He says, for whom he did foreknow. The dimension that you and I don't have access to that God does is foreknowledge. And that is that he sees the end from the beginning. He knows everything that's going to happen, and there's nothing that happens that is a shock or a surprise to him. He sees it all. He knows it all. And so because he knows it all, both of those things can be true. Because here's how it works. God calls those whom he already knew would choose him. Do you understand? That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 64 and 65, he says, there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me, except it were given unto him of my Father. Do you see where both of those things play in there? There's foreknowledge. He says, it it says he knew from the beginning who it was that would believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he says, therefore I said unto you, that no one can come except he is drawn of the Father. God chooses, though those whom he knows will also choose him. So foreknowledge and predestination work together. They're intertwined. Spurgeon put it this way. He says it's like a grand archway. And on one side of the archway is the invitation that says, whosoever will, let him come. And you make a decision and you say, I'm going through that archway. And as you walk underneath it and you look behind you at the other side, inscribed there above you are the words, I have chosen you from the foundation of the world. That both of those things are true at the same time. And from God's vantage point, it's possible because he sees the end from the beginning and he knows who will choose him. You say, well, am I chosen? Choose him and find out.
onward, Christian soldiers. Actually, you know, we're out of time. We're supposed to get through. I don't want to. I don't want to glibly brush off verses 35 through 39, our fourth and final thing. Um, and it is it is worthy of a of a whole week. So we'll stop there tonight in our study as we continue to move on through Romans chapter 8 and look at the blessings of our believing. Listen. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Your past is completely washed away. All things become new, the Bible says. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that you need to look back upon and say, well, God can't use me because of this in my life, or God can't bless me because that practice or that sin that I partook in. Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You don't have to sit under the weight and the condemnation of the things in your past. It's gone. And the things that concern you right now, the things that are burdening your heart tonight, the Bible says it's all working together for good. That God has His hand on you, He has His hand on your life, He has His hand on the situation, on the circumstances, and that He's perfecting that which concerns you. And that if you hang in and say, Lord, I trust you, in the middle of this, no matter how heavy and how hard it is, you'll look back later and you'll say, maybe Satan, maybe someone meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Nothing can separate us from His love. Nothing can stop him or thwart him in his purpose of glorifying you. And that which he's ordained upon your life will come to pass. So take heart and take hope, Christian. He's with you. Father, we just thank you so much for this truth, this glorious place that we come to in the scripture tonight, to look out and to see all that is ours, that we didn't pay for, that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve. Lord, please help us increase our faith. Lord, we know that the days are evil. We know that the power of the world is getting stronger and stronger. That, Lord, like a magnet, it seeks to draw away our affections, our attention, our time. Help us, Lord. Help us to have this perspective. Help us to not lose it or let go of it. 